You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. You saved for college, for a house, and for retirement. And now that you're on your own, it's time to put yourself first. Is your money buying you the life that you want? If you're not sure, learn more by scheduling a complimentary wealth checkup today at planefe.com slash hermoney. Hey, it's Motley Fool Money co-host Dylan Lewis here. If you're listening to us, it's because you love following the stock market and learning about business stories. If you're looking to keep learning and unlock your potential, then you should check out the Think Fast, Talk Smart podcast produced by our friends over at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning Best Business Podcast that's received nearly 43 million downloads and is the number one career podcast in 95-plus countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills, from making small talk that leaves a big impression, to keeping your nerves in check while speaking, to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, Strong communication skills are important in business and life in general. That's why you'll hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, as well as speechwriter, best-selling author, and friend of the fool Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. All that and so much more available on the Think Fast Talk Smart podcast. So what are you waiting for? Listen every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. From what I've read, women do have a reputation sometimes for being indecisive in terms of financial investing. And yet that's often more of a myth than a truism because they do like being comprehensive. Women do like seeing the problem from multiple angles and weighing their options. Hey everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. So these days, I think things feel more uncertain than they have in a really long time. The economy, I mean, by almost any objective measure, we are doing better economically than we were a few years ago, but the vibes are just kind of off. Uh, According to a recent CNN poll, almost 60 percent of people say President Biden's economic policies have made things worse. And yet wages are on the rise. Unemployment rates are at some of the lowest levels they've been at in the past 50 years. What's going on here? Well, For one thing, we are still bouncing back from astronomically high prices due to inflation in 2021 and 22. Mortgage rates are at their highest levels in more than 20 years, making it really tough to buy a house. Democrats and Republicans can't seem to get it on the same page. And while all of this uncertainty in the world may feel bad, One of the things that we lose track of, as my guest today will tell us, is that uncertainty itself is not necessarily a bad thing. Making hard decisions when we really don't know the outcome, that's good for us. It's good for our brains. And even while it may feel unsettling in the moment, you should pay attention to those feelings because careful thinking is born out 
of uncertainty. Our brains are actually using uncertainty to signal to us that there is something to be learned here. Maggie Jackson joins me today to talk about why we should be looking for uncertainty, both in our investing and our day-to-day lives. She is an award-winning author and journalist known for her pioneering writings on social trends. Her 2021 essay on uncertainty was named Best of the Foreign Press by Courier International, and she's got a new book out called Uncertain, The Wisdom and Wonder of Being Unsure. Maggie, so good to see you. Thank you so much for having me. In the intro to the book, you say the best thinking begins and ends with the wisdom of being unsure. Can you explain that? Yes. As you were mentioning, uncertainty is kind of a lament today. We think of it as being synonymous with weakness and inertia, but that bad rap that we give uncertainty is really not warranted according to new research. Uncertainty, just to give a little bit of a definition, even more of a definition, it's the awareness of the limits of our knowledge. So it's exactly what cognitive experience we have when we confront the new and the unexpected and the ambiguous. And amidst all the rising unpredictability and the volatility that you were mentioning, we need not just quick, sure answers, sometimes we do, but we really need the productive nature of uncertainty. It's closely tied to adaptability, to flexibility, to creativity, and to resilience. And those are skills that we need in times of flux, when things are changing. So actually, our human uncertainty, which we denigrate and undervalue, is actually a path to human flourishing. I've done a decent amount of research in the field of resilience. So One of the things I understand about it is that you can build it by taking action. When you are in the moment and you're not exactly sure what to do, doing something is the right thing, even if you end up switching it up from there. Is that how uncertainty helps us build resilience by leaning into it in that way? And how does it help you build those other important qualities? Sure. Well, to start with resilience, yes. I mean, resilience is sort of bounceability. It's the ability to take what comes in a positive but also productive manner. So now, actually, research psychologists are focusing on the fear of uncertainty as the root vulnerability for anxiety, for depression, for many, many mental disorders. And what does that mean? One pandemic study actually showed that people who were most intolerant of uncertainty, that is fearful of the unknown, were actually more likely during the early pandemic to take steps that were involved denial, avoidance, substance abuse, whereas people who were tolerant of uncertainty, and that means they still saw it as a challenge, but they didn't see it as an automatic threat. They were the ones who used more problem-solving strategies, like reframing the situation or asking for help. They move forward despite the stress, the good stress of uncertainty. So that's really important. And now one thing we can do to increase our comfort, it'll never be completely comfortable, but our ability to contend with uncertainty is to keep practicing. 
you alluded to that, you know, practice uncertainty. So that could be, and this is an actual exercise being used in interventions to boost resilience in high schoolers, answer your phone without caller ID. And that's something that a 20-something relative of mine that I told that to said, that's terrifying for her generation. I mean, very simple, but yet contending with the unknown in a, in a small way. Also at work, we can delegate more. That's something that's difficult for a lot of people to do if they don't know what will happen when the, you know, the junior colleague takes over. And so what they're doing actually is exercising, practicing uncertainty so that they learn it's not an automatic disaster, but they're also learning that the uncertainty is a space of possibilities. It might not just be bad or good. There might be a mix. So, and then they exercise that sort of muscle of using that mindset. And if you can't, if we all can't contend with uncertainty, we can't contend with life because after all, life is multifaceted and unpredictable. Especially life today, right? I think that as we think about uncertainty, as I've gotten older, there have just become, it seems to me, more and more things in the world that have become uncertain. Are there some people who have more trouble with this than others? And you've known my husband longer than I've known my husband. And I feel like I always believe that things are going to be okay. In the most part, I believe that things are going to be okay. He believes they are going to go as wrong as possible, and he plans for them to go as wrong as possible. And so he always has back pocket solutions. But I I'm wondering if this is, in a way, how you're wired. Yes. Well, that's a great question because the term, psychological term that I mentioned, intolerance of uncertainty, is actually a, a personality, a disposition. And it's a part of you. Everyone has a sort of comfort zone with uncertainty for many, many reasons. I'm sure both biological, cultural, your upbringing, etc. But nevertheless, although we all reside on this spectrum and people who are really, really intolerant of uncertainty tend to be more rigid thinkers. But that doesn't mean that everyone who doesn't like surprise parties loves autocracy and politics. I mean, you know, there's a spectrum here. People who are more tolerant of uncertainty tend to be flexible thinkers who love new things. They just love to try something new every time they go to a restaurant rather than the same thing and that kind of thing. But this intolerance of uncertainty is also situational. And that's the second point. Anyone who's under stress, anyone who's tired, anyone who's sort of under pressure to come up with an answer is going to be more likely to use snap judgment, et cetera, because they are driving toward the answer. We become less tolerant of uncertainty. So the context of how we live today is actually raising, many scientists think, our intolerance of uncertainty. This is precisely when we need to lean into uncertainty to gain flexibility and adaptability and when we are trying to retreat away from that. And the last thing I'd say is that, you know, circling back to that practice and that resilience. Intolerance of uncertainty is a kind of comfort zone. It's situational, depends on where you're in, what you're doing. And then it's also mutable. It's changeable. So you can grow more comfortable with uncertainty. I think that's the most fascinating part. Just like you can practice resilience, practice gratitude, practice optimism, how do you practice being more comfortable with not knowing? Well, some of the simple steps that I was mentioning a minute ago 
delegating at work or answering your cell phone without caller ID or trying a new dish at a restaurant literally are weaving moments of uncertainty into our daily life. And in fact, evidence suggests that one of the pressures upon our tolerance for uncertainty, our comfort with our our ability to, I prefer the term, lean into uncertainty, actually comes from our technology. So there are studies that suggest, this is really early work, the jury is not in, but when you're constantly checking, checking, checking your device, you are performing what's called a certainty-seeking behavior. And so when you look at it, you just, you know, you Google something. Unless people are camping in the mountains, they Google the answer. They're not exploring their unsureness. They're not sort of exploring the our knowledge networks. They're not trying to try on uncertainty. And that is actually keeping us from contending with life. It's actually kind of limiting our vision of the world. And helicopter parenting, for instance, is basically a search for certainty. You know, you're constantly, and that's a very technology-enabled pursuit. <laughs> it is. I mean, as you were as you were talking about not using caller ID, I was thinking about the many people that I know who track each other online. You know, my daughter and their friends, they know where they are. Like they all track each other and people track their children and it makes everybody feel a little bit safer, but maybe not so much in the long run. If we're looking for ways that are particular to us, right, to get out of that comfort zone, I'm very, very guilty of looking up. You know, I come up with a fact. I don't know it. Who was in that movie in 1968? I Google it right away because I don't (laughs) like not knowing the answer. What should I do instead? Well, I think, first of all, inhabiting uncertainty is really important. And well, let's drill in just a little bit more about the neuroscience of that moment when you do not know. When you either meet something unknown, something happens at the meeting, or you want an answer about something. When any human meets something that's new, unexpected, ambiguous, they have this stress response. They're actually in body and mind, they are stressed because humans are made to need answers for survival's sake. But it's really important, and this is just one of the most important things I learned about uncertainty is that's not the end of the story. The stress hormones and chemicals that might make your heart beat, I mean, not if you just need the answer to some movie in 1968, but, you know, in your first day on the job or whatever, when the airport, when you can't, they canceled your flight, your heart beats, you sweat a little, but at the same time, you know, cascading stress hormones and uh, chemicals, including powerful neurotransmitters, produce these amazingly beneficial changes in the brain. So at that moment when you're uncertain, your focus broadens, your working memory improves, your brain actually gets more receptive to new data. You know, you're on your toes. And that's uncomfortable. But that's actually when, as you mentioned, one neuroscientist told me some things to be learned here. And in fact, it's really interesting because there was a UBS survey of women and investing, and they found that 82% of women said recently that they were reassessing what's important in life as a result of the uncertainty of the world and the pandemic, et cetera. And if there was a fidelity survey that showed that women, as you know more than me, 
are more engaged with managing their financial futures. Well, that to me is a perfect example of this spur of uncertainty. It's provocative. So at that moment, when you're unsettled by an unknown, that's precisely when if you back away from your uncertainty, you're squandering an opportunity to learn. And that's a very important, I think, Rubicon kind of moment for us to change our viewpoint on uncertainty. And I'll just add one other thing. Uncertainty is a spur. So it's I call it a kind of gadfly of the mind. But also, it's a space for thinking. You know, you do slow down when you're uncertain physiologically. You have a sort of a natural pause. And so the surgeon who's daring to halt the operation, which is not what surgeons like to do and their pressure to be sure and swashbuckling, and then he or she is investigating and not just trotting out the same solution, or the scientist who's engaging in the thought experiment, they're using the cognitive space. They're inhabiting uncertainty. So it's not just that it is a preface to good thinking. I think this is really, really important. It's not just a prelude. That's the way I went into this research, thinking it was just something you got past in order to do good thinking. It's actually where the action is. When you do the good thinking. You touched on investing, and I don't want to leave the mention of investing there. I actually want to dig into it because it is a world in which uncertainty rules right? There is no certainty when it comes to investing. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about how do you wrap your brain around the uncertainty of investing in a way that works for your financial future. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. You saved for years for college, and now that the kids are finally out of the house, it is time to put yourself First, it's time you took a look at all of your financial plans to see what you might need to change and how you can save and invest a little differently now that your life and your finances have found a little more freedom. That's why it's beyond time to schedule a complimentary wealth checkup today at planefe.com slash hermoney. We are back with Maggie Jackson, author of the new book, Uncertain, The Wisdom and Wonder of Being Unsure. When it comes to investing, I've always thought that the reason that women in particular have trouble coming to the table at times is because there are no perfect answers. If you ask me, what's the best Miles credit card. I can tell you, right? And I can tell you with evidence. I can tell you with data. I can tell you with facts. I can tell you whether you fly American or you fly Delta. I can give you an answer and I can be right. When you say, what's the best stock? What's the best mutual fund? I can guess. I can back up my guess with some pretty good evidence. I cannot be right. And that is really, really hard for women like me, who like to know the answer to every question before we ask it. Yeah, exactly. And I think that uh, that's a really important point. And there are probably two sides to the question. One is that from what I've read, women do have a reputation sometimes for being indecisive in terms of financial investing. And yet that's 
often more of a myth than a truism because they do like being comprehensive. Women do like seeing the problem from multiple angles and weighing their options. So I think it's very important to Again, we're on a spectrum here. The end goal is never uncertainty. The end goal is not irresolution. That's not how humans were built. But I'd say the stronger urge often is to race to the solution. So the sort of natural tendency on the part of many of us, myself included, to research more or to get more information, I think is actually an asset. And so one of the tips I would say when it comes to this realm of your life is that you should own your uncertainty. You should know its worth as you would your financial assets. Taking time to make a decision is not wrong. That actually means you're thinking. And I spoke to a college group in the Midwest a few years ago when I was hadn't finished my book, and I was sort of testing some of my ideas. And, the, and there were staff, there were administrative people, and there were students there. And I was supposed to talk about my career, but I decided to talk about uncertainty. And I basically said, in a nutshell, when you're uncertain, that's when you're thinking. And you could see that the students just felt so much better. So it's, there's a sort of liberation when we embrace uncertainty. When is it too much, though? The rub on women is often we do so much homework that we never make a decision or that by the time we make a decision, we have wasted opportunity? Well, I think that I can't give any particular answer. We've talked a lot about the importance of the unsettling nature of uncertainty, that it is a spur. And that actually links to curiosity, which is also really important as a, as a good investor, as a good person who might be dealing with their family finances. But I think that we should separate or at least differentiate between the unsettling nature of life and our uncertainty, and then also fear. If your uncertainty is keeping you on a sort of narrow plane of living or investing, then you're afraid of the uncertainty. It's not the uncertainty, it's your fear of it that's actually holding you back. But if you are moving forward and yet it feels uncomfortable, you probably actually are on the right track. You can't research forever, but at the same time, you need to when something is complicated. I mean, if you're just deciding what lipstick to buy, you really don't want to sit and, and weigh the pros and cons too long. But at the same time, when something's complicated and when it matters, which finances matter, then I think in a world that denigrates the productive uncertainty that I'm talking about, then we need to own it more. We need to cozy up to it more. And uh, that's really important. And I'd also like to add that I think in this realm, uncertainty can help you find and work with the right financial advisor. Because there's so many times when our surveys showing that the products are geared toward men, that many, many, many financial advisors are men. And I'd say, again, that as women get more engaged, they can also look for an advisor or a doctor or a lawyer who's open-minded to your ideas, who doesn't make snap judgment, who talks the language of uncertainty. Maybe they don't use those terms because it's provocative, but they these are signals to you as the investor that they are actually doing the thoughtful work they need to help you. And who is tolerant, more than tolerant, welcoming of questions. 
questions are important and you need to feel able to ask them. I feel, Maggie, like this is what we're doing with Investing Fix, which is our investment club for women. I lead it with Karen Feinerman. She's a professional investor. And we've got 300 women coming on Zoom every other Monday night to learn about investing because they're curious, not because they want to be traders, not because they want to be professional investors, but because they are embracing the curiosity and giving them the ability to ask their questions in real time is part of what this is about, because that's that's where my tolerance for any doctor or lawyer or financial advisor shuts down. If they are not going to answer my questions, then I'm leaving. Right, exactly. If they're threatened by questions, that's a really big red flag. And and there's a sort of a linguistic term called hedge words. And those are words that are very related to uncertainty. Those are words such as maybe or sometimes instead of therefore or wrong. And if you can see that in a financial advisor or someone you're working with, that they're willing to say maybe, then that shows that they are tolerant of uncertainty. And they're actually linguistically signals to people in the room that there's more to know. If there's a maybe or a sometimes, there's there actually signals that the person who's speaking the hedge word is actually receptive to other people's opinions. So those are really important. And there's a Harvard study that got together groups of executives. And in, in pairs, they were discussing contentious political subject matter. And those who used hedge words, the executives who used hedge words were rated as more effective and as better teammates and as having better judgment. So we might think maybe it's not a great word to use today, but it actually is. We just did a show with Alison Fregale in and around this concept of weak language or so-called weak language, which is not really weak at all, which helps you in many cases in the workplace and with your negotiations. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about. Precisely. And, and that that is a kind of opening up to uncertainty in the language between us. And there are lots and lots of studies also that people who argue to learn tend to be more tolerant of uncertainty, and they're the ones who wind up kind of building knowledge together, whereas people who argue to win are more rigid thinkers, and they treat knowledge as if it's a rock to be defended and held. And actually, no progress occurs in an argument like that. And, and arguments are really important, too, in um, collaboration Arguments, dissent, mild, respectful, discord, very, very important opportunities to surface what you don't know. You only can move forward as a group and collaboratively if that's the case. Arguing to learn versus arguing to win. I have never heard that before. I'm definitely holding on to it. You just described in a sentence everything that is wrong in Washington, D.C. right now. As you have gone through the process of writing this book, What's changed in your life? Oh, well, that's such a good question. Yeah, I mean, I, I must say, as a child, I was always someone who was more uncertain. I have a twin sister. She's now a cardiologist. <laughs> so she was the person who could walk into a store and buy the right dress in five seconds, and I would be hemming and hawing. And I really felt ashamed growing up of this uncertainty. Now I'm not. Now I embrace it. So that's a sort of personal backstory. But I also found that uncertainty has helped me in so many ways because uncertainty can 
I call it uncertainty in action or modes of uncertainty that are occur throughout the day and we can harness them rather than kind of running from them. And so, for instance, uh, we were dismantling the house in Michigan of my husband's dad. And, and he was still alive, so he was part of the process. But there was still a lot of tension, as there is, dividing up the things. And so what happens? We got a rug that the sister wanted. And it became sort of a black and white. Things were seen as black and white. You give back the rug or you don't give back the rug or she gets the rug or you don't get, you know, it was so black and white. And I felt as though I called on my uncertainty and felt as though there can be another way. And it ended up that my husband and I suggested a trade, a barter. And people were happy with that. So that's a real life example. I found that I can I've learned so much about what it means to get better. I've learned so much about just contending with life when now that I have this sort of reservoir of knowledge about uncertainty. Before we wrap up here, I want to pick up one thread about something that you said very early in the podcast that I let drop, but I don't want to. You mentioned that uncertainty can be helpful when it comes to dealing with anxiety. And I know that a lot of our listeners, and particularly a lot of our younger listeners, have been struggling with anxiety, with their mental health. What would you tell them that they can take from this in order to be a skill that they can just have in their back pocket? Well, there is a radical revisioning now in the psychological clinical world about what anxiety is. It's now seen as a fear of the unknown. That is seen as actually the sort of root fear that underlies a lot of mental disorders. And, and I think I mentioned that. So, but I think that we all, again, live on a spectrum of anxiety. You, you don't have to have a very deep anxiety disorder to be more anxious these days, you know, to have more angst about the world, however that surfaces in your life. And I think that by recognizing that perhaps the fear of uncertainty is greater than the uncertainty itself, by recognizing that you can tiptoe in to uncertain situations and that helps you get better by recognizing that there are little moments throughout the day, opportunities that we have to pull uncertainty into the light, basically, instead of just trying to push it away and keep it in the closet, to label it and talk about it. And I think those are all really important steps that we can take to wrestle with this Thing called anxiety, which actually might be just a discomfort, natural as it is, but ramping up today in today's context with uncertainty and not knowing. And it's many, many, many times okay to not know. You know, I feel that compulsion or that yearning to know when it comes to where my daughter is, what she's doing, and even though she's past college. And I have that compunction to have the answers to something I'm fretting about. But at the same time, actually letting it be, even just sleeping on a problem is actually a form of uncertainty in action that's shown to be extremely good for strengthening your knowledge networks and, and allowing you to synthesize. And when you put a problem to rest, 
even if you're doing something else. But if you just set aside a problem that actually allows you to come up with insight, and you know, that's our kind of grandmotherly wisdom, but the science of it is astonishing. Study after study show that basically people who set aside a problem, even briefly, and don't do something else, don't pick up their phone, are actually learning better, their memory improves, but also they're gaining insight. They're truly gaining insights. I mean, one thing that I love about uncertainty is it opens up our cognitive horizons. We're so focused on knowledge and knowing that we sort of neglect the liminal space or the gray spaces or the not quite yet ready spaces of knowledge and knowing. And that's a credible opportunity. It's almost like discovering a new galaxy in space. And it also underscores to us, both as female investors or savers or just employees or workers or mothers or et cetera, that life is mutable and dynamic and that's where its challenge lies, but also its beauty. When we are uncertain, we're able to see life as it is, not as we wish it to be or assume it to be. And what could be better? We're actually taking off the kind of blinders of cognitive bias when we're allowing ourselves to be uncertain. Fascinating, fascinating conversation. Maggie, where can we find out more about you and this amazing topic? Well, the home base, I would say, would be my website, which is maggie-jackson.com. Remember the dash. Also on X and LinkedIn. But uh, yeah, check out my website. There's a lot of writing there and my events. And I'm really excited to be on the road and speaking to people about these issues. Congratulations on the book. Thank you so much for being here. It's truly my pleasure. Thank you so much. Before we dive into our mailbag, a quick word from our sponsors. Hey, everybody, it's Jean. If you want to continue unlocking your potential, then you should also check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by our friends at Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning Best Business Podcast that received nearly 50 million downloads. It's the number one career podcast in 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills from making small talk that leaves a big impression to keeping your nerves in check while speaking to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, strong communication skills are critical to business. All that and so much more is available on Think Fast, Talk Smart. Listen every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. Dive into the heart of crime with Foul Play Crime Series. Immerse yourself in the most perplexing cases where each twist and turn is more baffling than the last. With riveting storytelling and detailed analysis, Foul Play brings the unsolved and unexplained to life captivating your imagination. Listen to Foul Play Crime Series now, where every story is a puzzle waiting to be solved. And we are back for our mailbag. My daughter, Julia Chatsky, is joining me. How you doing, Jules? 
I'm good. How are you? I'm getting ready for winter, and I just made really good shakshuka, and I can't get the taste out of my mouth, but it's a good taste to have in my mouth. I've never made shakshuka. Is it hard? No. And it was the kind of thing where I had all of the ingredients already. We had like a half cut up onion. We had a bell pepper and garlic. And then Mm -hmm. I added some cumin, oregano, red chili flakes, and sort of let it all soften. And then I just took, and this is something I always keep in my pantry, but I know you always keep jarred sauce. I always keep like just chopped tomatoes or diced tomatoes. I keep that too. Oh, you do? Okay. You were a sauce user. I still am. I'm a sauce user. I'm like a Rayos. I have jars of Rayos that I get from Costco where they are so much cheaper than anywhere else. But growing up, you were a Newman's Own sauce girl. Do you remember that? I love Newman's Own. The Newman's Own marinara is really good. You liked the basil growing up. Yes. I still like that. Well, so I just put some chopped tomato sauce and then I... Really let it simmer for like a solid 30 minutes and thicken up and emulsify all the flavors. Added some more cumin so it didn't taste too like marinara and vegetables, more hearty flavors. And then I sort of made some holes in my pot, cracked in, I made four eggs because Adam had half, four eggs. And then I put feta and I put the lid on top and just let it cook right up. And then we have these healthy, low-carb tortillas that I covered in garlic and I threw over my gas stove, made a little crunchy pita, essentially, and dipped it all up. And it was delicious. And I can't get the taste out of my mouth, but it's getting so chilly out. It was a nice, warm thing. It was like when you have half-used vegetables, because we had tacos earlier in the week. We always use like half an onion and a half. And I was like... I don't know. It was just simple and it was delicious. It was delicious and it was free. Exactly. It was free. Exactly. It was free. It looks really good. Especially because it wasn't my week to purchase groceries. So it was extra free for me. (laughs) All right. I'm going to try that recipe. Let's answer some questions. What do you say? All right. Our first question today comes from Marty. He writes, Hi, Jean. I am new to the personal finance sphere and discovered my educator 403B has a weighted expense charge of 1.62. I contributed $1,000 per month and have an account balance of $200,000 with a 70 to 30 stock bond mix. I am 53, earn around $170,000, will work for at least six more years and receive a net pension amount of $94,500,000 annually. My husband will continue to work and provide a net income of $36,000 annually. Once he retires, he will get receive a pension of $12,000 a year annually. We spend about $100,000 per year, which will go down once the two kids finish college and leave the nest. Fingers crossed. We have two Vanguard Roth IRAs with a balance of $37,000, which we maxed out and recently opened a Vanguard brokerage account with a balance of $6,000 and contribute $750 per month. My question is, what should I do about the outrageous fee-heavy 403B? Stop contributing and move the $1,000 per month to the brokerage account? Or is there another recommendation? Thank you for your help. What's a 403B? That's a new term to me, and maybe it's a new term to somebody else. Yeah, no, that's exactly where I was going to go. It's a really good question. A 403B is just like a 401K, but it tends to be a plan that schools have 
and sometimes hospitals have. The other plan on the landscape that's similar to a 403B is called a 457. So you might hear that terminology somewhere too. And Marty's right. Some 403Bs charge higher fees. Many of them charge higher fees that can eat into your profits. It's not true of all 403Bs, but it's definitely true of this one. And just to sort of put it in perspective, if you were looking at ETFs, for example, and you were in a 401k, you should probably be able to keep those expenses down under half a percentage point. So this is a significant difference. There are a couple of things that you should you should do. I'm assuming there is no match on this money. If there is a match on this money, it's going to it's going to outweigh what you're paying on those fees, so you want to contribute as much as you have to to grab all of the matching dollars. Then once that option is off the table, the thing to do is to look at the different options that you have to invest in in your plan and to try to move toward lower priced options. From within a 403B framework, what you're likely to be talking about here are mutual funds. They're not going to be as cheap as ETFs, but they are going to be less expensive than annuities, which are often the other options that you are offered within these plans. And by shifting around the balance of your investments from within the plan, you could ostensibly lower your annual expense ratio from the 1.6 that you're paying to something around 1%. You could also invest some of your retirement contribution in an IRA. You could make sure that you max out the other more cost-effective options that you have. Now, the limits on how much you can invest through an IRA are not as high as the limits on 403B contributions, which line up against 401K contributions. But by shifting some of the money over, especially if we're not talking about matched dollars, you ought to be able to save yourself some money there as well. The thing that you want to keep in mind is that there is a real benefit to the tax advantages. And you want to make sure that you are giving your money the opportunity to grow tax deferred for as long as absolutely possible. So that's what I would do. That's how I would look at it. And thanks for a really good question. Next question? Yeah. Our next question today comes to us from an anonymous listener. She writes, Hi, Gina and Julia. I find myself completely stuck. I've been at my office for six years. I joined fresh out of school with no experience. It was a small office where everyone was treated like family. We hit hard times during the pandemic with their salaries being cut at 50% at some point, then exploded and did so well, we now quadrupled in size. I found out for months that recent less qualified hires are making more than me. I never brought up the fact that I know other peers are making more, even after they've asked me to train someone below me who makes more than me. All of our clients love working with me and have commended my professionalism. However, in one of my recent talks with my manager, I felt as if I was talking to a wall. By listening to all of your helpful podcasts, it's pretty clear to me that I've made a few mistakes here. One, I've always waited for them to give me raises. Two, I've never changed jobs. Three, I don't speak up for myself as I have a fear of repercussions and I am very conflict avoidant. 
the result is I feel stuck. I've been with this company way too long, and I am terrified of putting myself into the job market. I have so many medical bills tied to their insurance being not so great. How would you approach this? At what point do you suggest bringing up your salary inequality, especially when they have been so vocal about equality? I know I have to leave. I just don't have the energy, bandwidth, and frankly, confidence to take the leap. I feel very burnt out due to my health condition, work, and financial situation. On a positive note for you two, I have been listening to your podcast since the pandemic, and I just want you to know that I have learned the importance of investing, and I went from less than 2K saved to over $50,000 saved in contribution for the past three years. Of course, I'm still not able to maximize my 401k annual contribution and IRA as I wish I could, but you have given me the mindset and goals to do so. I didn't grow up in this country, and I never had anyone explaining this. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. Well, first of all, let's just focus on that amazing last section. Seriously. You have supercharged your savings rate. You are doing this. You're doing it fantastically. Eventually, you will get to the point where you're maxing out your 401k and your IRA, but this is fantastic. So hold on to that for a second. Feel really good about that. Let that build your confidence because I think you know what I'm going to say. You have to stand up for yourself here. They, based on what you're telling us about how you are loved by your clients and commended for your professionalism, they would be silly to let you go. But beyond that, people don't get fired for asking for a raise. People don't get fired for standing up for themselves and explaining what they are worth. And because they've been so vocal about equality, you have absolutely every bit of ammunition and every right to simply go to the person who has the power to make that decision. Maybe it's your manager, maybe it's somebody further up the food chain and say, I am managing these people They are making this amount of money. I have been with the company for this long. I should be paid X. It's just bringing me up to the level with other people in my position. Should you be paid more than that? You probably should. But I would start by laying out what you know the truth to be, insisting that they acknowledge that, and then letting them know that this is your expectation. And at the same time, I would be looking for another job. I would be putting out feelers. You don't have to wait for another offer to have this conversation. And you don't have to feel bad if you get an offer at your current job and then you get an offer that's better and you want to go somewhere else too, right? That's absolutely right. That is so true. And Julia has said this before on the show, and I think it's true. Don't have this conversation the first time you have it with your manager. Have it with a mirror, have it with a friend, have it on pencil and paper, practice it so that the words start to feel a little bit more natural coming out of your mouth. And if you want to go into that office with a script, go into the office with a script. 
that is okay. It's fine to take notes with you, but make sure you are very clear about what you want to say and how you want to say it, and then just schedule an appointment and do it. You are going to feel so much better. I also think there's a part of this email that hasn't been acknowledged that should at least be praised for. This person has been at their office for six years, and it sounds like it was one of their, no, they joined Fresh out of school. That is not easy. No. And so clearly the workplace knows their value as well. I graduated school five years ago, and I'm three jobs out. So kudos to this person because that's solid. It is solid. Unfortunately, what happens when you stay at a job that you've had since you were very young is sometimes they don't recognize that you've grown up. Sometimes they don't recognize how much you've progressed, and sometimes they don't pay you for that. And often you have to point it out to them in a very deliberate way to get them to step it up. I've had to do that over my career. And it sounds like this person works in an agency, and if their agency is anything similar to mine, we have plenty of people that we refer to as boomerangs. They leave and then they come back. And if you have to leave and then come back to get the money you feel like you deserve, I don't think it's uncommon in agency culture. And I can also speak from personal experience. I left one agency and I doubled my salary at the next, doubled and more so. So sometimes it just gets a little stagnant and you have to take the leap. But people have come back. Yeah. And please let us know what happens. We want to hear back from you. So good luck and keep us posted. And if you have any other money-related questions we'd love to hear from you, just send them our way by emailing us at mailbag at hermoney.com. And now we're going to take a quick break. Hey there, listeners. It's Nima Gobier. I'm the co-host of MindShift, the podcast where we explore the future of learning and how we raise our kids. I don't teach math. I don't teach reading. I teach people. You'll hear from teachers, parents, researchers, and students as we uncover innovative approaches in and out of the classroom. It holds a lot about how we want students and young people to move through the world, how we want to set them up for success. Find MindShift wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back with your money tip of the week. Are you someone who loves shopping but loathes the thought of standing in line to make a return? Us too, and you are in luck. Just in time for the holiday shopping season, Uber is standing by to return your packages for you, for a fee, of course. It'll cost you $5 to have up to five packages returned to the local post office, UPS, or FedEx. There are some restrictions you need to know. First, the package needs to be valued at under $100. It needs to weigh less than 30 pounds. It also needs to be sealed in prepaid packaging with a label or QR code. You can't give them alcohol, highly perishable foods, gift cards, or fragile items, and it's only available in certain cities for now. So is it worth it? I often say time is money. If $5 saves you an hour of driving to the post office, standing in line to make a return, a tension headache from the stress, not to mention the money that you're spending on gas, I say you might want to go for it. For more savvy budgeting tips, investing advice, even giveaways, subscribe to the Her Money newsletter at hermoney.com slash subscribe. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Maggie Jackson for explaining why we should embrace uncertainty in times of flux. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. 
We'd like to thank our sponsor, Edelman Financial Engines. Her Money is produced by Haley Pascalides. This show is mixed and mastered by CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Check out our new podcast, How She Does It, with Karen Feinerman for intimate cocktail party-style conversations with today's most talented female leaders. This podcast is also part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. You can find us and other shows like us at airwavemedia.com. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon.